Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one in the seat back in front of you or raise your hand. Someone will hand one to you. We're going to be in Luke chapter 23, verses 13 through 49 today. I want to thank Arthur for just giving a great message last week, just on target about the old life, new life, putting off and putting on. It was, it was awesome. It was heart, just to the heart, and it also was short, which today will not be. <laughs> I'm making up for all of that, and we're just going to do it. We're getting into the final two chapters of Luke. We're actually in the heart of the final two chapters of Luke, chapters 23 and 24, which we've been going over the past year and a half. We're on the home stretch in these last two chapters, chapter 23 and 24 of Luke. They focus on two central events of human history, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For without the death of Jesus in our place for our sins, God's wrath would remain upon us and mankind would have no hope of escaping God's judgment and eternal separation from God in hell. The name Jesus means that God saves, and that's what he saves us from. We can't ever leave that out. But Jesus did rise from the grave, amen? He did die so that those who believe that he died on their behalf would be declared not guilty before God. And I don't know about you, but when I am totally guilty before God, and then He declares me not guilty, not based on anything I've done, but someone died in my place, I'm, th I'm saying yes and amen, hallelujah, amen? And so that is what it means to be redeemed, that Jesus died. The second theme is that Jesus rose from the dead, which will be chapter 24, and without Jesus rising from the dead, Christ would just be like from every other self-proclaimed prophet. He has no power over death. He would have no hope of eternal life. We wouldn't. But Jesus did rise on the third day, and He alone has the power over death and hell, and will resurrect those who by faith believe upon Him for that life. And that's what makes us Christians. That's what makes us redeemed, not in the works that we have done, but the works that He has done on our behalf. He died in our place. He conquered death. We did not, and He freely extends those things how do we receive the forgiveness of sins? How do we receive eternal life? Through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is what the whole book is pointing to, the Messiah sent by God who redeemed mankind. And so over the next few weeks, we come to those, as we come to those verses, we're going to come to those foundational events. And today we're coming to the passage of Scripture concerning the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. In the verses we've already studied last week, um, uh, this is Jesus' basically last week of his earthly life. Jesus has already been betrayed by Judas. He's been arrested under the cloak of darkness uh, that late Thursday night by the religious leaders who then began to try Jesus. And those trials would be three religious trials and three uh, civil trials, three under the Jewish leadership because they were Jews and they had their own law, and then three under the Roman leadership. And so 
That's kind of what has been going on. The three religious uh, trials were already held, basically. We've already gone through them. They were held by the Jews in the cloak of darkness to seek to find those religious grounds in which to charge Jesus. And the first trial was under the former high priest. It was at his house. So um, that's what he does in his spare time. Um, He tries Jesus in the cloak of darkness and uh, his name was Ananias, and then the current high priest, Caiaphas, they quickly went to his house as they gathered everybody together, the religious leaders, and they further brought false witnesses trying to get Jesus to say something, and then finally um, they remember that Jesus claimed to be uh, the Son of God, they claimed to be the Messiah, which was blasphemy, and so that was the charge that they came up with, that he said that he was the Son of God, that he was the Messiah. And so basically, now that they have their charge, the third trial is brought in the early morning in the public view, where all could see. Look at this man who claims to be God that's blasphemy. He deserves death. And so they, they condemn Jesus. And then, because they do not have power to execute Jesus themselves, being a high public figure that he is, what do they do? They have to get Rome's approval to execute who had the power to um, execute because they were the occupying force. And so they go ahead and send Jesus to Pontius Pilate, and this begins the last three trials. And before Pilate, uh, Jesus didn't really answer anything, and they kept accusing him. And Pilate said, I see nothing wrong with this man. And then through the conversations, he finds out that he's a Galilean. He's from the north. And so what they do is he goes, well, that's not my jurisdiction. I'm going to pass the buck. He passes it to Herod, who happened to also be in town. Herod, uh, who wanted to see Jesus perform miracles and all these types of things, basically um, he tried to get Jesus to talk. Jesus didn't say a word, and and he, he mocked him. He put a robe on him and sent him back to Pilate. And now here we are at the third uh, and final Uh, trial before Pilate, which is where we are picking up. And you have to keep in mind, it is Friday morning. Jesus has been awake all night. He's been tried. He has been beaten. He's been mocked. He's been dressed in robes. Soldiers and religious leaders are hurling insults at him that Jesus claimed to be the king of the Jews. And for them, this is a giant comedy. And Herod, his soldiers now having mocked the Lord, sent Jesus back to Pilate, dressed in that elegant robe. And this Ended the fifth trial. Now the final trial before Pilate in verse 13. Let's pick up. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and he said to them, You brought me this man as, no one, as, as one who was in, uh, inciting the people to rebellion. And that was their charge. He had, they had to find a, a charge, the Romans. They, I mean, the Romans could care less whether or not Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. But you start messing with Caesar and you start messing with Rome, then those are grounds in which Rome would step in. And so they said, hey, he's inciting a rebellion and also he doesn't want, he's telling everybody not to pay their taxes. And so, of course, government's like, hey, uh, let's, let's figure this out. But Pilate says, you sent him to me on these claims. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him, verse 15. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, verse 16, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted away with this man. Release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for insurrection in the city for murder. 
Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. This is a far cry from Monday or Sunday for some of us when he comes in on that triumphal entry and they're crying out, Hosanna. Now they're crying out, crucify him, crucify him under the influence of the religious leaders there who had murder in their hearts. Now, if you're following at this point, you go, who in the world is Barabbas and why are they asking for this guy? Anybody else just kind of going, well, that's just kind of weird. And when that happens, that's something cultural and, and, and the other gospels kind of explain. Pilate is trying basically to get out of this. He knows Jesus is innocent. He doesn't want to be the guy who declares he's innocent uh, because, I mean, he wants to let him go, but the guys that he's dealing with, the Jews, have the power of the crowd right now. And so there's a political pickle. It's what you should do and what you have to do to save yourself. That's what politicians are faced with, right? He knows Jesus is innocent. Herod couldn't find any charges. And Matthew's account tells us that Pilate knew it was out of self-interest that they handed him over to Jesus, uh, handed over him over to him. And so Pilate is being pressured by the religious leaders who have considerable power with the people. And he's seeking to find that way out. And he decides to go over their heads, over the religious leaders' heads, and try to just appeal to the people because they probably think that, he's probably thinking that, hey, he's pretty popular, he's healed some people, you know, there's some, there's some good vibes going on. Maybe I can appeal to them, go over the religious leaders' head. The, the religious leaders will listen to the people and I'll get out of this thing. That's his thinking. And so Matthew's account in chapter 27, 15 through 16, it, it explains really what's going on. Let me just tell you what it says. It says, now it was the governor's custom at the festival, that's the Passover, that's why they're all gathered there in Jerusalem, to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. How benevolent. So quite often the, um, the Rome would grab some kind of political dissident and all that stuff and hold them captive. And, and as a will of good gesture towards the people, when they all gathered together, say, hey, who do you want me to release to you? And they would choose someone and they would let them go. But it, it says at that very time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was uh, Jesus Barabbas. Um, Jesus isn't in the earlier manuscripts, but his name is Barabbas. And so Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. He wants to release him. He says, hey, I'm going to release Barabbas who is an insurrectionist and a murderer. Now, who do you want to release? An insurrectionist, uh, an insurrectionist and a murderer or Jesus? I'm going to release one of the two. And he's trying to appeal to their moral conscience, right? So they go, you know, we're Jews. We follow the law. There's no way we're going to release a murderer, Barabbas. This guy's, a, this guy's uh, he's just horrible. We're going to do one or the other. Which one do you want? Barabbas, this murderer, or are we going to release Jesus who claims to be the King of the Jews, the Son of God? Which do you want? And the ironic thing here, I don't know if you've ever caught it before, remember the word Abba means what? Father, and Bar means son of. And so the ironic thing that uh, Barabbas means son of the Father. Isn't that weird? So it's no coincidence that the Holy Spirit is recording for us the clear choice that was given here. Barabbas, a son of an earthly father who was a murderer and an insurrectionist, or Jesus, the son of the heavenly father, the son of God. Those two choices are before them. Man or God, that's just kind of what it comes down to. And it is during this time, while this 
upheaval is happening. The chief priests are going around and they are rallying the crowd. These are definitely uh, community activists. And they're getting in there, they're riling up the crowd. They're getting them excited and upset to persuade the crowds to ask that Barabbas would be released. That's what Matthew 27, 20 tells us. So there's a lot going on here. And in verse 21 here in Luke, it says that the crowds kept crying out, crucify him, crucify him. Verse 22, and for the third time, that is he, Pilate, spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? Have I, found, I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and release him. This is a public declaration in a court of law that Jesus is innocent. So what happens in our court of law when the judge says he's innocent and then turns around and executes a person? That's what's going on because the people didn't like the verdict or whatever it might be. Pilate had declared Jesus innocent, and that should have been the end of it, right? But the crowds were being manipulated by those religious leaders, and so Pilate realized that he could not win over the crowds by offering to give Jesus freedom and immunity instead of Barabbas, and so he decides to punish Jesus in hopes that this would satisfy their desire for justice. And this is when Jesus was scourged, having his back shredded, all the while being mocked further by soldiers, given a crown of thorns pressed into his brow and a reed for a scepter and a purple robe as they bowed down to him and paid homage to him in mockery. And so Jesus is beaten and bloody and bruised and, 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 and dressed in this mock royal array. And then he's again presented to the crowds. This is what the Gospels are kind of, each one is telling a little piece of the story. and I'm pulling it together a little bit so you get a picture. Verse 23 here in Luke, but with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. The Greek here for insistently demanded has the idea that they were becoming riotous. The same word is used earlier in Luke to describe when the crowds were pressing against Jesus. Remember when they were constantly just pressing against Jesus, it was becoming so intense. The same word is used later in Acts. If you remember when Paul was in the storm and the waves became so tumultuous that it destroyed the boat, that's the word, that it became increasingly violent. That's what's going on. How many of you have been in a situation where there's civil unrest on a mass scale? I have not, but I, we, we see it on the news where riots break out, where uh, there's a mob mentality. And it's usually just a few people inciting these things, and then you, you, you appeal to people's baser instincts, and you get them riled up in anger. I mean, where's Byron? Is he Byron in here this morning? He's serving in the nursery, yeah. yeah he's, he's, he's got British origins, and he likes soccer or football. Have you ever seen those places go berserk? over a football match or, you know, whatever it is. I mean, it's just absolutely insane. And so this is what's going on. And if you're the leader, what are you trying to do? You're trying to make sure that the, the peace is maintained, and not only the peace is maintained, that you are safe. So 
Pilate had to decide between Jesus and self. And that's what it came down to. And this is what it comes down to for each of us. We can know all about Jesus, who he claims to be. We can know he's innocent. We can know what he says it's true. But what it comes down to in our lives is, are we going to choose Christ or are we going to choose self? Self-preservation, apparently, or Christ. To choose Christ would have meant that Pilate would have had received the hatred of the masses and possibly his own death at that moment. It was, it was intense. But verse 24 says, So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they had asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. It was at this point that Pilate washes his hands and declares before them, I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. Pilate was not innocent. He was complicit in this. You can't wash yourself. You have to be washed by God. Even in this moment, I think God in his mercy had tried to reach Pilate. I think Matthew or John's account tells us that when he's sitting on the seat of judgment, his wife sent him a message. And the message was that have nothing to do with this innocent man, for I have suffered greatly in a dream today because of him. Whatever that was about, Pilate's conscience was, was being plucked, and yet he chose to betray the Son of God into their hands. Pilate was not innocent. He was complicit in the surrendering of the Son of God to the will of man, which was murderous. And as Jesus had said to the chief religious leaders at his arrest hours before, he said, this is your hour when darkness reigns. And like a lamb who's silent before it shears, he was quiet. He opened not his mouth. He did not say anything. And he went willingly to the cross. As Jesus, I'm sorry, as verse 26, as the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. Jesus had been beaten severely at this point. He hadn't eaten in a long time. He was obviously physically compromised bleeding, back ripped open, hurt. I can, you can go into the details, but he's, he's really hurting. He's exhausted. And either Jesus was moving too slow with his cross or, or he just physically couldn't do it. They conscripted this guy named Simon of Cyrene. They pulled him out of the crowds. Remember when it says in Matthew, if, if a soldier tells you to pick up, or someone tells you to pick up something, go with a mile, it says, go with them what? Go with them too. Under Roman law, they could do that. They could ask anyone to say, pick this up and carry it for me. And you had to for one mile. And so Jesus had, had, had Simon behind him carrying the cross. Maybe he was helping him carry it. Depends on what, which gospel you're reading. But 
it says that he was Simon who was from Cyrene, which is a city in, in, was a city in, in modern-day Libya, North Africa. Interesting thing about Simon of Cyrene is he was a Jew, Simon's a Jewish name, who was most likely on his way to Jerusalem with his family to celebrate the Passover. All the Jews came over from all these various lands, and that's why you see it in, in the book of Acts at Pentecost. You see all the different languages represented. Everybody heard everybody speaking in their own language when the Holy Spirit fell and, and the disciples began speaking in tongues. And so Mark fifteen twenty one describes him as the father of Alexander and Rufus. And so Mark, when he's describing this, he says, that's the father of Alexander and Rufus, which tells you that Mark's audience knew him or knew of his sons. That's pretty interesting. The audience of Mark's audience, which was probably to Rome, would have, would have known this. And according to church tradition, Rufus, one of Simon's sons and Simon's wife, are mentioned by Paul in Romans chapter 16, verse 13, where it says, Greet Rufus, chosen the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. And so apparently Simon's wife and his mother, I'm sorry, uh, Simon's wife and, and son were a part of the church in Rome and ministered there to and with Paul. And so while it seems that Simon was plucked out of the crowd, plucked out of obscurity, he was actually plucked by God. And the cross literally changed his life and the lives of his family and beyond. If you go on reading in Acts, it mentions in uh, Acts 11.20, men coming from Cyprus and Cyrene who went to Antioch to share the gospel with the Greeks. So probably he went home, a church started, and men came, and they eventually began to witness in faraway places, which is what I'm asking the Lord to do in and through us that God would so change our lives by the cross that we would be so compelled by His love that there would be no place that we wouldn't go to spread the, the message of Jesus. And so, verse 27, a large number of people followed Him, including women who had mourned and wailed for Him. These might be hired women, we don't know. But there's a, there's a scene, large crowds are following him to the place of his execution. Verse 28, And Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that have never borne and the breasts that have never nursed. Verse 30, They Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if people do things when the tree is green, if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? And as Jesus is being led away, these women are mourning, and Jesus tells them, don't weep for me, you're the ones in trouble. And the daughters of Israel is a term in the Old Testament they would have known, that's just speaking of Israel in general, the daughters of Jerusalem. You're the ones in trouble. You know, God has blessed women with the role of bearing children. What a blessing, absolute blessing. When I watched Christine turn into a mother, it was the most amazing, powerful 
thing that, that, that I've ever seen, just, just the transformation. You know, there she is holding the baby. <laughs> Life is so sweet, and, and for it to come out of your body and to hold it, I, I can't even imagine what that is, is like. But God has blessed women with the role of bearing children. It is one of God's richest blessings. And in the Jewish woman's mind, it was a sign of great blessing. And to be childless was a horrible stigma in their eyes. They associated many children with the blessing of the Lord and no children as being withheld. And you you really see that played out in um, the Old Testament when you have Sarah Sarah and Leah, Leah and Rebecca. Well, one of those. I always get those messed up. My mom's name is Rebecca. My sister's name is Rachel. So I get those. <laughs> those people back then. One of them couldn't have kids and they kept going, you know, please, now if I have a kid, and they kept naming their kids, like, if, can I please have more kids? That's what they kept naming their names. Um, it's pretty funny. But it was a sign of great blessing. To be childless had, had, that, had that stigma, I guess. And Jesus is saying that there is a com- there's coming a time when you will be saying it is better to never have children than to have them in these circumstances. And that would have just blown their mind. They're going, it's better to not have kids because things are going to become so horrible in your circumstances that it's better to not have children. The very life and the joy, it's better to not experience that because of the evil that will be, or the judgment, actually, that will be present on the earth. And Jesus says that it will be so bad that death will seem like a blessing, not life. And they will say to the mountains, fall on us, and the hills cover us. For if the people do these things, when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Jesus is the green tree. I'm with you. If they're doing that when I'm with you, what's, if the Romans are doing that to me while I'm here, what's going to happen when the, the, the tree is dry, when I'm gone? What's going to happen to you? And the judgment came in 68 through 70 AD when, when, when Jerusalem was absolutely occupied and women were eating their own kids because it was that bad of a situation. Horrible. And that is a microcosm because Jesus is actually quoting himself or <laughs> back in Revelation chapter 19 where it talks about that, that the world will be judged. And the situation in the world becomes so intense when God's wrath comes down on the world that they will be crying out, have the rocks fall on us. We don't want to, it's just too much for us. So this is heavy stuff and Jesus is saying you've got it wrong the morning is misdirected. You rejected me, and now judgment is coming. And he mourned for them. He mourned for them the week before. When he came into Jerusalem, he said, Oh, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you as a, as a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. And he mourned over them. This is not something that, that God or Jesus delights in. He doesn't delight. The, the scriptures say that God desires that all should come to repentance, amen? None should perish, but all should come to repentance. That's God's heart. And nevertheless, when you reject the Son, the wrath remains. That's why the gospel is the good news. Verse 32, And two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals 
one on his right and the other on his left. This is as graphic as the Gospels gets about the, about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Just those four English words, three in the Greek, it just simply says they crucified him there. All four Gospels, that's all they say. They don't get into the details of it, none of that. And the reason this is, the reason why is because everybody understood at the time what it was. Crucifixion was a common occurrence. As many historians say that as many as 30,000 people were crucified during the time of Christ. 30,000. It's a common execution. The Romans were brutal. Crucifixion came on the scene about 500 years before Christ, five or 600 years before Christ, by the Medo-Persian Empire in about the 6th century BC. And then the, uh, the Greeks soon used it as Alexander the Great came through and conquered, you know, around 400 and, uh, B.C., and, and he basically got upset at a city and crucified 2,000 of them as, for revenge. And then soon the Romans caught on, and the Romans perfected it. And it was going on until basically the 4th century A.D. under Constantine when he basically banned it. So crucifixion was basically a slow death that took anywhere from hours to days for the person to die. And uh, basically the wrists, of the wrists and the feet of the person were nailed to a cross, and the person was lifted up and left there to hang and die. That's what it was. And the cross wasn't a nice, polished, finished thing. You know, it's like we might as well have an electric chair up there. That's what that symbolizes. It's a very powerful thing. Sometimes the imagery, we can just lose all the meaning of what it, what it means. It wasn't polished. It was rough. They weren't sitting there and go sanding it. Hey, let me make this cool for you. It was rough wood. The nails, according to archaeologists, were tapered. They were five to seven inches long, you know? They were square, about half inch wide. So they're crude. The legs, they were bent before they were crucified and so that the victim could um, push up so that your legs weren't straight. They were bent so that you could push and pull up from where you were nailed and through to get air. And then you'd go down. And as you imagine, your back is messed up. You're bleeding all over. You're hurting. The, the, the birds are coming and plucking at you. There's insects all over you. And you are, to get air, you're pushing up on those wounds, and you're breathing, and you're letting go. And this happens until you die. Eventually, you would die because you could no longer push up anymore, making breathing difficult, and you'd suffocate. And to hurry up the process, they would, Romans would come by and they would break your legs so you couldn't push up. And within minutes, you would die. You could die. That's what they did to the other two thieves um, because they didn't die yet. And it was Passover. So Jesus was taken to the place of the skull. That's called Golgotha. We know it as Calvary in English, which means skull. That's what the word Calvary means. It means skull. I went to Calvary Chapel. I went to Skull Chapel. That's where I was ordained a pastor. 
We don't know exactly where it is, but it was a public place. Crucifixions always took place in public places where everyone would see that anyone who messed with Rome would be put down. So they put it along the highways. They put it at Walmart. I mean, wherever it was, they wanted you to see high traffic areas. Very visual, brutal reminder of who's in charge. There's a traditional site in Jerusalem and a secondary site. There's a couple of sites, but nobody knows exactly where the place was where Jesus was crucified. Some think that it's, uh, it's a place uh, next to the, um, the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's right there as you're looking off the garden. You're looking to the right. There's a bus stop at the bottom. And right next to it, there's the place of the skull. <clears throat> it's pretty interesting. It could be just the old quarries and excavation and, and looked like a skull. It could be that there were skulls around, but most likely not because they're Jewish. And so who knows? But both of those other men, along with Christ, were crucified. They all experienced the same physical things. 30,000 people. There was nothing uh, special about the crucifixion in that Jesus. I'm not saying that Jesus didn't suffer more. He suffered in other ways. But they, it was brutal for all of them. These men were nailed with him as he was there. And the experience, yes, was the same physically in many ways. And we get the word excruciation from that, excruciating from that word um, uh, crucify. It means out of the cross. That's to describe the most severe pain we can be in, excruciating pain. <clears throat> but Jesus was nailed just like the other guys. But the major difference is that they were executed because of their own sins. And Jesus was executed for our sins. He was innocent. They were guilty. They were executed because of their sins, but he was executed for our sins. So Jesus was nailed to the cross and lifted up, verse 34, and Jesus says from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said he saves others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. <clears throat> Verse 36. The soldiers also came and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. Jesus is surrounded by the people, the rulers, the soldiers, everyone sneering at him, mocking him, dividing up his clothes in front of him. Can you imagine that as you are dying? People taking your possessions and dividing them up. And Jesus looks upon them all and says, Father, what does he say? Forgive them. What is that? For they know not what they're doing. <clears throat> at one time or other, we have all been there on the other side. We did not know what we were doing. And even in that, God's willingness to forgive us was present. Amen? How deep the Father's love for us, we sang. How vast beyond all measure that He would give His only Son 
and make this wretch his treasure. Jesus was surrounded by enemies in his final hours. Last week, I encouraged you to read Psalm 22. How many of you did your homework? Rest of you, purgatory. (laughs) (laughs) Psalm 22 is written a thousand years before the cross. If you want to know what was in Jesus' mind, what he was thinking while he was on the cross, it was written down a thousand years before it happened. The Spirit of Christ was in the prophets testifying of Jesus. Psalm 22, verses 1 through 22. You can flip there if you want. I'm going to read it. Although Luke doesn't say a lot of these things, you're going to hear gospel cross messages coming out here. Psalm 22, verse 1 through 22. My God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out to you by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. And in you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults. They shake their heads. He trusts in the Lord. They say, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you, from my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. And these would have been the bulls that are raised in the north of Israel, lush land, just symbolizing the strong Jewish presence there. And then He says, roaring lions that tear their prey open, their mouths wide against me, and I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It is melted within me. My mouth is dried like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth, and you lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Crucifixion had not been invented yet. 500 years. And he's talking about the Roman dogs, the Gentiles. He's talking about being pierced in his hands and his feet, being surrounded, being mocked. The things that people are saying have already been prophesied. All my bones, verse 17, are on display. People stare and gloat at me as Jesus is naked, basically, on the cross. And they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouths of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. 
this is what is going on in the minds of Christ, the mind of Christ. Crucifixion obviously wouldn't be around for another 500 years from when this was written, and yet it says, they pierced his hands and they pierced my feet. Being surrounded by the bulls of Bashan, obviously it represents the Jews, well-fed, sitting there, casting their judgment on him. The strong bulls of Bashan and the dogs, obviously the Roman Gentiles. In Psalm 22, 1,000 years before the crucifixion, detailing the insults, the dividing of the clothes, the gloating and even the hands and feet, an impossibility, a thousand years. Do you even know what was going on a thousand years ago in history? And yet to be that precise, these are the reasons why I trust in Scripture. And yet, when people read this, they go, that must have been written after the fact. That's exactly what the world will tell you. It had to have been written after the fact. You young people getting ready to go to college, that's what your professors are going to tell you. That was written after, after the fact, if that is if they're not believers. And then you get something like the Dead Sea Scrolls, which was written a thousand, or, you know, it was even an earlier manuscript, and, oh, well, I guess it wasn't written after the fact. It was, I still don't like it, you know? But over and over and over and over again, and this is why Luke writes the gospel of Luke. He says, I want you to know about the things that are being fulfilled, have been fulfilled among us. They've been prophesied. The Old Testament told you all about it. And here they've happened among us. I want you to know, Theophilus, that what you believe is true. Jesus did die according to Scripture. He was buried. He did rise from the dead. Don't let anybody fool you. These things really happened. You didn't see it. But I've talked to people who have. They were there. I've walked with them. They've all been changed because of it. This isn't pretend stuff. This is real. It's an impossibility apart from God actually revealing this. As Revelation 19.10 says, it is the spirit of prophecy who bears the testimony of Jesus. That's what prophecy is about. It's about Jesus. Wow. Verse 39. Let's finish up. And one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In verse 43, Jesus answers him. He says, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Amen. I love 1 Peter chapter 2, 23-25, which says, uh, the first part says, uh, when they hurled insults at him, he did not reta- retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus didn't retaliate when that thief uh, was, was mocking him. And actually, the Gospels say that both were at the beginning. Jesus didn't retaliate. He didn't do that. And then one of the guys changes. Perhaps as his own life was fading... And as he watched Jesus in the midst of his suffering, asking God to forgive those who were attacking him, just the total difference of what was coming out of their mouths and what was coming out of him when they were crushed. 
I've often seen people see Jesus differently when their lives are coming to a close. And they desire to seek the one they've rejected their entire lives, even mocked a week before. They come to a place where they know that it's futile and they have no hope and they know that he is true. And they find that even in those last moments of their time here on earth, that his grace is sufficient to forgive them of all sin and welcome them into the kingdom. Let me say that's a wasted life. But you're in. <laughs> Amen? You're in. To the degree that we trust and obey, we, to, we're here to glorify God. To the degree that we love and obey Jesus Christ is, I believe, the degree that we're going to be rewarded in eternity. The degree that, that we're going to be able to enjoy eternity. Amen? But praise God that His mercy is sufficient in the last moments of someone's life. Amen? You know people in that position, don't, what did they got to lose? Preach the gospel to them. Love them into the kingdom. Share Jesus. And don't, don't, um, don't back away from it. This is it. I know you're going to stumble and mumble through words. I do. Let me listen to me today. Just be filled with His Spirit and speak His truth. Share with them. But don't wait until that last moment. Amen? Start now. But anyways, verse 24 and 25 of 1 Peter, go on. We're almost there. He said, he's, he's, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. And by His wounds we have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Today, you will be with me in paradise, Jesus said to the one who believed in faith. Amen? Today, even after a, li a life marked by sin, culminating in his execution is just punishment. Even in that moment, God forgave him and said, today you will be with me in paradise. Amen. The power of the blood of Jesus Christ. And when he closed his eyes, he awoke that day with Christ in heaven. Verse 44, and it was now about noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. From noon to three, it was dark for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, and Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. Notice, no one took Jesus' life, he gave it. He willingly went there. He wasn't going, don't nail my hands to the cross. While the other guys were freaking and struggling out, and that's why they gave him that gall to, to, to medicate them and to stop them sometimes. He willingly put his hands on there and said, let's do it. The Father's will. He willingly went all the way to the end. And for three hours, it was dark. Now, this darkness that was happening was not the eclipse or the clouds. It was God's coming into exact judgment on his son to pour out his wrath, his vengeance, his fury upon his son on our behalf. In those three hours, Christ bore our sin. That's what was going on. 
He became sin for us. And this, we would know this because the Old Testament speaks of God appearing in darkness. We always say He's light, but He also comes in darkness when it comes in judgment. And dar- the darkness was the Lord's. And all throughout the Old Testament, the Lord causes thick, supernatural darkness to appear to Abraham during the covenant with him, to Moses on Sinai in the plagues. The Israelites knew the supernatural darkness was associated with judgment, and God was coming to judge Christ for the, on behalf of those who would believe. And it says that as soon as the darkness was lifted, the veil was torn. Three hours of darkness, then the veil was torn. And the thick veil in the temple had separated God's presence from the people. Only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, that, that place within the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the presence of God was, and only the priest could enter there once a year. It was the high priest once a year with the blood of a bull to sprinkle upon the altar on behalf of the whole people. The only person to access the presence of God was the high priest and not without blood. And that was atoning. It was the Day of Atonement. They atoned for the sins of the people. For without the shedding of blood, there is no taking away of our sins. God's wrath remains on. The temple, the high priest, the blood of the bull, the veil, were all pointing to spiritual realities. They're shadows. The substance is Christ, Hebrews tells us. The temple was a physical model of the spiritual reality of the throne room of heaven. The high priest was a picture looking forward to Christ, who is our high priest, but he is without sin. He never dies. The sacrifice animal that atoned for the people's sins was a type It was looking forward to Christ's blood who was sacrificed for us once for all time. These were temporary, repetitive things that happened. Not going to do it. They pointed to Christ. The Sabbath, physical picture of the rest we have in Christ. I know that's going to... All those things, pictures of the reality in Christ. The veil represents the body of Christ, which was torn and made it to where we could enter into God's presence through Him. A new and living way to enter into fellowship with God through faith in Christ. We were once separated from God because of our sins, Jesus' flesh was torn so that we could, by faith, enter into the presence of God. So what happened was when the physical temple veil was torn, it was His sacrifice that was torn in God's presence that made it to where we could enter into the Holy of Holies. It's physically happening so spiritually we could be with God. This is the whole thing that Jesus talked about. Unless you eat of my flesh and you drink of my blood... You have no part with me. Physically eat of your flesh and physically drink of your blood? No, I'm talking about the things of the Spirit. Stop focusing on the types and focus on the Spirit. Those who are born of the Spirit understand the things of the Spirit. You can't understand the things of the Spirit unless you're born again. And that doesn't happen until God illuminates you. 
this world will be shaken. All that is is going away. (laughs) But you, if you've been born again by God, you will stand before him. You'll be given a new body, fitting. Anyways, I want to go back to this. So when the veil of the temple was torn after three hours, that was the institution of the new covenant, basically. It was enacted, officially enacted that very moment. The covenant of grace. We broke God's law and the penalty is death and separation from God. We had no way to restore ourselves. We, had, we were dead in our sins and trespasses. That's the bad news under God's wrath. But Jesus obeyed God's law where we could not perfectly on our behalf. And through him, we have been reconciled to God. You've been reigned right with God through faith. Praise the Lord. Amen. And the centurion, here we go, th- last, last three verses. The, the centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. The centurion, having seen everything, how Jesus suffered, the supernatural signs, the earthquake that wasn't mentioned here, the darkness, everything, he was converted. Second group, 48, when all the people who had gathered around to witness the sight... They saw what took place. They beat their breasts and went away. This group was converted. They were convicted. Only getting three C's, I'm telling you. They had been a part of the crowd that sentenced Jesus to death. They had followed him. They had been part of the fanfare. And when they saw everything, they knew that they were wrong and they beat their breasts. They said, what happened here is not right. And they walked away condemned, convicted. But verse 49, but all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. These were the believers, but this group was confounded. They did not understand the significance of everything that happened. But let me tell you, Sunday's coming. Amen? Sunday's coming, and it's come for us. And so this morning, we'd like to end our service by celebrating communion. It's the first Sunday of the month, and it's fitting. It's a tangible reminder, a physical reminder of what our Lord Jesus did for us on the cross, what he endured and what he accomplished for us. Amen? He received in him our penalty. He died in our place, and by faith in Christ's death, we are forgiven and are born again to everlasting life. Let me tell you, if you have been born into this world and you are breathing in and out, and you have never received Jesus, you have never lived. Today is the day that God would have you give your heart to him. Say, I might not understand everything that guy, long-winded guy just said, but I do hear that I'm a sinner and that no way am I going to ever be right with God on my own. But God loved me. He sent his son to die for all my sins, past, present, and future. And by believing in him, I'm saved. Saved from the wrath of God. You're born again. God gives you his spirit. And you begin to follow him as you just trust and obey every single day until he takes you home or comes and gets you. And when you die, you don't have to fear judgment. You look forward to the reward. <laughs> Amen? And so we have a joy a joy that is in us as Christians because of what Jesus has done. And this day, we have the opportunity to come and remember 
And so as we gather together as a church, if you are a born-again believer, we want to invite you to come to the table, grab the elements, the, the bread which represents his flesh that was torn for us to make away, and his blood that takes away our sins. Once for all time, these elements don't save you. Jesus did. They point to it. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Amen? Enjoy him. Thank him. Love him. Pray together. Say, God, where do you want to send me now, now that I'm free? What's your plan for my life? What you got going on? I'm 80. Let's do it. <laughs> Amen? Where do you want me to go? Cross the street? It's pretty far, but we're going to do it. Let's go, Lord, and just walk with him every day and enjoy him. Amen? Commune with Jesus and may his spirit fill you this week. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but it is Christ who lives in me. Let him live. Amen.